What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 34. We're doing Coming of Age, specifically the films Lady Bird, Call Me By Your Name, and Moonlight. All films that were made in the last five years. Sensational movies, some of my favorites in the last decade for sure. Um, I'm a massive fan of Call Me By Your Name and Moonlight. Lady Bird's a very good movie by Greta Gerwig, and I can't wait to talk about these films. Yeah, coming-of-age movies, obviously, we st- they come out every year, but these three films in particular tell the stories in a really powerful, profound, and mature way. Typically, with coming-of-age movies, there's like always high school bullies, and there's the big party, and this is guy going to get the girl. And it's always the same kind of cliches that you see over and over again, but with these films... Um, They tell very unique stories. And also, Sean Connery passed away at the age of 90. He's a truly legendary actor and icon in film whose performances will live on forever. So rest in peace, Sean Connery. Great actor. This episode of Raise the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 for 15% off your order. And right now we have a movie poster giveaway contest sponsored by Movie Posters. So go and subscribe to the YouTube channel and enter that contest by commenting on the giveaway video if you haven't already. We announce a winner on Friday, this Friday. Get that free poster, guys. It's free. This episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off your order and free shipping from manscaped.com. Before we get started, if you like our podcast and our content, the best thing you can do is subscribe to our YouTube channel, share our show with your friends, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. We know you have movie friends out there. Introduce them to our show. Let them know that there's a movie podcast and YouTube channel for people out there that love them so much as much as we do. Hit that notification bell, leave a comment on YouTube. Also, leaving a five-star review really helps us get seen by new viewers and new listeners, especially those written reviews. We also have a Patreon now, so you can support us there monthly. And also, patrons get perks like personalized videos sent to them by us, sneak peeks at upcoming videos. And our top-tier patrons also get a monthly shout-out on the podcast once a month, which we're going to do right now. Thank you to our top-tier patrons, Caitlin Signorelli, Mason Taylor, Harrison Ball, Logan Schroeder, Harry Roscoe, Nate Moore, Riley McDonald, Michael Caranja, Caleb Fleming, Justin Weimer, Andrew Sullivan, Angel Mendez, Tyler Meyer and his girlfriend Asia, Morgan King, Nikila Simeona and his girlfriend Caitlin, Gabe Gutierrez, Travis Ball, and Morgan King. We love y'all. Now let's begin this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast, Coming of Age, Episode 34. Beware, spoilers are a bound. We are going to begin with the film Lady Bird, which was directed and written by Greta Gerwig in 2017. The film stars Sorsha Ronan, Laurie Metcalf, Timothy Chalamet, Beanie Feldstein, Tracy Letts, and Lucas Hedges. On a budget of $10 million, this film had a box office of $78 million worldwide. A strong-headed, passionate girl in her senior year of high school experiences the heartaches of first love and the reality of applying to colleges. The movie follows her relationship with her family and friends and the difficulties of a low-income family. This is a a fantastic debut for Greta Gerwig, who's also written uh, a few films with Noah Baumbach that he made, but she directed this one, and it was refreshing to see the coming-of-age tale from the point of view of a young woman that avoids the cliches that we usually see. It's not like, it's not all about, oh, she dates the guy or gets prom queen. You know what I mean? It's about more than that. It's got deeper themes than that about about life and about 
understanding who you are as a person. Absolutely. And like you just said, directorial debut, this is one of the best I've seen in recent years coming from Greta Gerwig, who showed a tremendous amount of skill and maturity as a first-time director. Greta co-wrote and co-directed a movie called Nights and Weekends a long time ago in 2008 with Joe Swanberg, who's kind of like an indie uh, filmmaker, um, makes a ton of great small independent films. But that film had no budget and made $5,000 box office, so it probably came out in like a theater. So I don't really <laughs> consider that as an actual directorial debut. Lady Bird is her first legitimate studio movie directed by herself, written by herself. And it's it's a somewhat semi-autobiographical film by Greta because she went to St. Francis High School. She grew up in Sacramento, California, which is where the film takes place and where Lady Bird goes to school. Yeah, part of this movie, it is a love letter to Sacramento, a place I'm unfamiliar with and that even people in California are unfamiliar with. But um, I think she captured the city in a great way. And from people I know who are from Sacramento, when they saw this movie, they saw all the iconic landmarks, stores, um, shopping centers, the bridge, the, the bridges. River. Yeah, they and they loved seeing the iconic imagery from Sacramento in the film. And Greta, she has a good amount of experience in film, mostly from acting and writing. She's been in a ton of movies. Some ones I really like, The House of the Devil, To Rome With Love, Greenberg, Francis Ha, which she co-wrote. Um, she's also married to filmmaker Noah Baumbach, who uh, directed Francis Ha. He also directed her in um, Greenberg. Greenberg, Mistress America, a bunch of movies that Greta actually starred in too. And he most recently made, in my opinion, the masterpiece Marriage Story. So they both, in the recent years, have... Uh, become critically acclaimed filmmakers at the same time. I think Scarlett Johansson's character in Marriage Story is partly inspired by Greta Gerwig because at the end of Marriage Story, Scarlett Johansson becomes a director of, of a TV show, whereas Adam Driver was a play director and a playwright, and he was surprised by her choosing to be a director, and then she also found great success. So I think it kind of relates to Greta Gerwig and her relationship with Noah Baumbach in real life when... She, he actually offered to direct this film for her after he read the script, but she, she rejected it and decided to direct it on her own and obviously did such a great job and was, uh, received many accolades, just like the ScarJo character in Marriage Story. And Greta hasn't acted since she voiced a character in Isle of Dogs in Wes Anderson's film in 2018. So she hasn't acted since and has pretty much devoted herself behind the camera and producing and writing and directing. Yeah, I think her last on-screen performance was in Jackie. She played uh, Jackie's aide in it with uh, Natalie Portman. I think that the main theme of this movie is something that all young people struggle with at a certain point in their lives, especially in adolescence and in teenage years and when you're going through high school, is we're all struggling with a sense of identity, figuring out who we are in the world, figuring out what we want to do with our lives. That's a common theme in all three of these films of identity and not knowing who you are. And I think specifically with Lady Bird, Greta makes this point where it's okay to not know what you want to do with the rest of your life, what direction you want your life to take when you're 18 years old, which is something that Lady Bird spends the entire film not knowing what to do and wanting to experience things in New York and, and leaving Sacramento. But she doesn't realize that she loves Sacramento, and like she spends the first half of the film talking about how much she hates Sacramento. She hates her school. She wants to get out of there. She wants to get culture. Yeah, everything she does is a way to get out of Sacramento. You're right. And towards the end of the film, at the end of the film, Lady Bird, or she starts to go by Christina at that point, she realizes that she really loves Sacramento, and she really misses her hometown. Yeah, she didn't realize how much she loved it until she left it. And that's why I think she got so drunk she got alcohol poisoning on her first night away from home. Because she missed it so much. And it's also foreshadowed in the beginning of the film when she 
turns in her thesis and she's discussing it with that advisor or, or the nun and the nun's like you did a terrific job and i can really see that how much you love sacramento based on how much description you you put into it and her intention what she thought she was doing was talking sh- basically talking shit about sacramento you're right that seems very important because it relays a second theme in the film which is attention and how attention is love and it, it's an expression of love and so lady bird's attention to detail about sacramento proved that she really loved sacramento so much because attention is a form of love and this actually relates to um, her relationship with her mother. This, so this film is very much as much about Lady Bird as it is about her mother. In Lady Bird's point of view, Marion is a very overbearing, controlling, and, and domineering mother. And Lady Bird always views it as a detriment, and they constantly clash. And their relationship goes through ups and downs, and they're constantly bickering. And... Lady Bird's always um, fighting against her, but then she realizes by the end of the film that, going back to the idea of attention, that her mother gave her so much attention because she loves her so much, and it took her until she left to understand that the idea of attention and how, even though Marion wasn't expressing her love in a more of a motherly way or compassionate way, she was expressing her love by giving Lady Bird as much attention as she could. Yeah, which was actually detrimental and was what caused Lady Bird to not want to be close to their mother and drove her crazy. For example, in the thrift store when they're trying to pick out dresses and her mother's like, uh, do your feet hurt? Do you need to sit down? If you're tired, we can sit down if you're tired. And Lady Bird, Lady Bird's just like, can you, can you just relax, Mom? I'm trying to live my life because she's turning into an adult. And you're right, attention is what Marion gives Lady Bird the most and ironically pushes them away. In this film, yes, it follows Lady Bird, but we're really given two perspectives and the only other perspective of the film is her mother, Marion. So we're getting this teenager's perspective of Lady Bird and the story is about her, but also we're getting the adult perspective. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply in the adult point of view of a parent and of Marion who Lady Bird's whole arc in this in this film is her journey into adulthood her journey um, going through high school and moving on to college and moving away from Sacramento and moving on with her life whereas Marion has to learn to let go of Lady Bird in this film which takes her the entire film and towards the third act she begins to shun Lady Bird because of her decision to go to New York and to leave Sacramento yeah and the reason why she shunned her is because it wasn't it wasn't because she was applying to schools. It was the fact that she lied to her mother because her mother. We learn it's kind of her storyline is kind of hidden in the film. You don't really get a big sense of it right away the first time you see it. But I think upon repeat viewings, you really see the underlying subplot of Marion's story woven within Lady Bird's story. And and Marion, she has a lot of the same um, desires that Lady Bird has. Like she says that she. She thought that they were going to get in, move into a bigger house years ago, but they're still stuck in the same house they've been in for 25 years. You know, she's been working two, uh, two shifts a day at the hospital. She, cause her husband lost his job. Her husband lost her job, his job. She's dealing with her husband's uh, depression. Lady Bird oftentimes has a selfish point of view and she doesn't factor in other people in her 
and the problems of her life. And she fails to recognize everything her mother's going through and everything her mother's sacrificing to be able to provide a life for her daughter. And part of the reason why she works so much is because she's paying for Xavier, so the private school that Lady Bird's going to because she doesn't want her to go to the public school because she wants what's best for her. And also, I think the title, Lady Bird, actually perfectly corresponds to the character of Lady Bird because the word bird also means girl. And so if you look at the title with that meaning, it, the title is Lady Girl. So I think that means that Lady Bird wants to be an adult and she wants to be a woman, an independent woman. But ultimately, she can't stop acting like an immature girl most of the time. Yeah, exactly. This film takes place in like the not too distant period of 2002. You know, it's not that far away, but technically it's a period piece. And I, I really love films that are, are kind of modern, but we don't see smartphones and cell phones because... If you accurately filmed a movie today that takes place today, everyone would have a smartphone out in their hands, but... It'd be a very boring movie. Greta, <laughs> Greta wanted to make this movie feel like a memory, and so she said in this, this time that she's so familiar with, which is where she grew up, and we grew up... We were um, growing up around that time. I, I relate very much to this movie. I'm sure you do, because it takes place in the, in the early 2000s. We went to a Catholic high school. We you know, were awkward teenagers. You know, you had a troubled relationship with your parents in those years, so I found this movie highly relevant to, to my past, um, and also Greta, she filmed this in a way to make it look like, look nostalgic. Um, she, she based a lot of the cinematography off of yearbook photos or kind of those Xerox copies you would make. So when we were growing up, we didn't have social media. So what we would do is print out hundreds of photos of things that you liked and you'd hang them up in your locker. You'd pin them to your walls in your room. So your room would be covered of just photos of random stuff that you found on cutouts of magazines. Yeah. And uh, disposable cameras, yeah, photocopies and stuff yeah. like that. So she, she wanted to give it this like kind of nostalgic, timeless quality of that era. And I think she was really effective in it. Yeah. You can feel the authenticity of the environment and of the setting. And I think that it's, it's a lot easier to write, a script without smartphones also yes because then you don't have to try and depict accurately teenagers who are obsessed with smartphones but then also not having a smartphone involved in the, in the plot allows you to do things um, because they aren't connected all the time to other people for example she could have set this movie in present day and it would have been uh, very similar to the film eighth grade the fantastic movie that came out a few years ago which depicts uh, an eighth grader who is trying to figure out the same kinds of things about her self-identity, um, struggling with um, family problems, but because it's set in present day and she's a young person, she spends by far the vast majority of her time, like all other kids, on their smartphones because nowadays kids interact, they socialize, they experience things in a way just on their phones through different media outlets. Whereas if Greta Gerwig set the film during this similar present day time a lot of what ladybird would have been doing or saying or interacting with would have been through instagram through youtube through twitter so it wouldn't have had the same impact as it did um and not to say eighth grade isn't great i think eighth grade is actually one of the best movies of the last five years but it would have been a completely different movie tonally this movie greta opens up perfectly to set you up for what you're about to see and set up the characters and again, the main conflict and the main relationship in this film, the, the daughter and the mother, because obviously Lady Bird has uh, relationships with boys. She has her best friend, Julie. She gets in with the popular kids at some point. She loses her friends. She gains friends. She has a relationship with her with her sibling. 
with her brother, with her father. But the main core relationship in this film is between the daughter and the mother. It's between Lady Bird and Marion. And the opening scene perfectly shows this when they're just on the trip. It's that classic scene, or it's the classic kind of uh, rite of passage for someone in high school going to visit colleges, and they're listening to that uh, that audiobook. And then what you think is going to be a genuine and, and like happy moment between mother and daughter, like all their interactions goes south and goes sour and, and turns apathetic and, and hostile. And Lady Bird jumps out of the car and breaks her arm. Yeah. And it's, it's hysterical. It's a great scene. And you can see the things they're arguing about are things they seem to have been arguing about for years. It's not like this is the first time they've had this discussion or this fight. And it seems like something they always seem to argue about, especially after finishing an audiobook of a, of a novel they both love, I think The Grapes of Wrath. And it shows that they do love each other so much, but they're constantly at odds with each other because they have completely different ideologies. Because Lady Bird, uh, what happens with a lot of teenagers and a lot of young people is when you get a certain age, get to a certain age, you're 16, 17 years old, you think you know everything. You're so stubborn and arrogant when you're young and you rebel against um, authority, you rebel against your parent, parents, and you think you know what's best for yourself. But in reality, you haven't really experienced anything in life and you really don't know anything. And I think Lady Bird's dealing with that same situation where she, she, all she wants to do is get out of Sacramento. And she even gets upset when she gets accepted into Davis because it's only 30 minutes away. You know what I mean? She wants to go so far, she wants to go on the other side of the country. The interesting thing about this relationship between the mother and the daughter is that Greta Gerwig originally titled this film Mothers and Daughters. So it was the central theme of the movie, this relationship between Lady Bird and Marion. Lady Bird, she's a great character, and she's someone who, she doesn't have as much as other kids she knows has. She doesn't live in a great house. She doesn't, her parents aren't wealthy. And she kind of, in, in many ways, she rejects her life, and, and she, she wants more, and she wants something better. She doesn't know what's really um, morally valuable in your life and what's really important. And this is mostly reflected in the way that she changes her name to Lady Bird. Because she's rejecting who she is. Yeah, Lady Bird, you can tell pretty much early on in the film that she doesn't really want to be herself. She doesn't want to be Christine. So she creates this new persona, Lady Bird. She constantly scratches her name out on like the playlist, the cast list, and writes her name in as Lady Bird. And uh, quotation. Yeah, she explains the name given to herself by herself. <laughs> um, and she's changing quickly, like a lot of teenagers do. She has that unique hairstyle. She. She accentuates her outfits with like a lot of uh, interesting jewelry, and um, she has that pink cast. She she picks the hot pink cast, which you would think you would pick, obviously, like in like elementary school, middle school, but like that's an odd choice for a high schooler or, or someone about to be an adult to be like a, a neon color. So she picks mm-hmm. pink, and she only writes one thing on it. She writes "fuck you, mom" on her cast, mm-hmm. and so she's obviously rebelling against her mother as well too. And Lady Bird is highly impulsive. Um, she needs attention and wants to be the center of attention in every situation. And she sacrifices, obviously, she's damaging her relationship with her mother. She also sacrifices her relationship with her friend, especially her best friend, Julie, who she basically abandons in the hopes to, to be, become popular and to become a cool kid and to win the affection of the character played by Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, Kyle. And, Kyle. And, um, and during one of their fights between Lady Bird and Julie, Julie tells Lady Bird that she always has to be the center of attention. That's all she wants in her life, yeah. everywhere she goes. And it's a great character fault of Lady Bird, which takes her a long time to realize 
what she's doing to all the relationships in her life. Yeah. Her second main character flaw is that she's a selfish person at times. You know, she's she's mad that Julie got the lead in the play, and she even says to Julie, "I don't." I, she doesn't know how that happened. Um, when her dad drops her off at school, he always makes her drop her off bef- around the block. And even when he says, I love you, um, saying goodbye to her before she goes to school, she doesn't even reply, I love you. She immediately says, so what do you think about the applications? So she's trying to get something from him, even though he's just trying to express express his love to her. Lady Bird fails to take accountability and responsibility for herself, her life, and her own actions. And even, even the fact that she's doing horrible in math class, but she's blaming it on her genes, not her work ethic, which is nothing. You know what I mean? She's mad that, like, she's not good at math. She thinks it's because of her mom's genes. And so she's blaming her mom for her, her failure at math, even though she's not putting in any work in class. And so there's this constant cycle of Ladybird not taking responsibility for herself. Yeah, and Ladybird's also hysterical in this movie. Greta yeah. Gerwig ha- definitely has a knack for comedy, and she has a great comedic voice in this film. It reminds me a lot of Wes Anderson in ways, and she has these, like, quick, hilarious, like, one-take shots or, like, little lines, like Lady Bird jumping out of the moving car. She's buying the cigarettes, the scratch ticket, and porno on her 18th birthday. I love the grocery store, and she's like, come here often. Yeah, and <laughs> she steals the magazine at the grocery store. She, like, stuffs it down her skirt. Um, she has a ton of funny and just blatant outright lies that she constantly tells without caring about the repercussions that will happen later on because of the lies. Mm. And plus also when the football coach has to direct the school play, it's freaking hysterical <laughs> to me. I love that scene. You're coming hot. You're coming hot. <laughs> so I think Greta Gerwig definitely has a knack for comedy. And yeah. this film is very funny. And Saoirse has always been an extremely prevalent actor since she was a kid. She's been nominated for three Oscars now. I think she got her first nomination when she was 11 for Atonement. And plus, remember when she was in Hannah? Yeah, she's I love that movie. Hannah. She's so cool in Hannah. Yeah, but I think that Lady Bird was her her true star-making role. She's the solo lead in this film. She's the titular character. And she's just she knocks it out of the park because she's Irish, but she's such a great actor. You, you believe that she's this young woman who grew up in Sacramento. More, it's, it's unbelievable she can just morph into these characters at such a young age. She's really probably the best actor of her generation, I think. And I've seen a lot of critical reviews of Lady Bird because people saying that they can't really relate to the character, they can't relate to the movie or the story. But that's the beauty of, of film and art is if you genuinely open yourself up to a movie, to a story, you don't have to have the same experiences. You're telling me you relate more with, with Maximus and Gladiator, you relate more with Training Day, you relate more with Star Wars, have you done much galactic traveling right now? I fight with laser swords all the time, man. Like, come on, like, <laughs> you just have to let yourself open up, open yourself up to stories, and that's what's so beautiful about it. And I, I yeah, I grew up as a, in, growing up in Catholic high school, low-income family, just like Lady Bird. But, but also, I'm a man, so I didn't have the exact same experiences of her, but I still relate very much to the story. I absolutely relate to her as well. Not just those similarities, but also that desire to be popular, that desire to be cool, and that desire to be liked by others. And so I can really relate to the the flaws in her character, especially when she ends up lying to her new friend about the blue house that she supposedly lives in. And she's so... She's so desperate to get in with that crowd and to be a cool kid that 
She's go, she's lying about who she is in order to do so. And I can actually really relate to that. That obvious trope in a lot of coming of age high school films where, you know, there's that desperate desire to want to be with the cool kids, the popular kids. And we obviously get the, the story of abandoning Julie, abandoning your best friend to get in with that crew. And then obviously coming back to your best friend towards the end of the film, towards the end of the story, which, you know, mm-hmm. we've seen a million times. But I think Greta did it in a really... Um, effective way where she kind of deconstructed that trope in a way and, and made it more realistic in a sense and you know these popular kids they're not like the the cliche soulless beautiful perfect popular kids who have like literally don't seem like human beings she actually humanized the popular kids and gave them character flaws and like Kyle is kind of an asshole and and then the other uh, new popular girl she's 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 like a normal person too but it's just like Kids, I think, find themselves in that role of being a popular person, and it kind of becomes their identity in a way. Yeah, and I think oftentimes films like to show popular kids or wealthy kids as being like awful people. In this film, after she ends up lying to her friend, and, and she the the friend finds out about the real house, her friend says this really wise thing where she just she hates dishonesty. You know, and dishon- like honesty is very important to her in friendship. And it's like I can actually relate to that person because that's a, a good quality to have. She's not like this just this asshole sorority girl, popular girl in high school. You know what I mean? I think by trading up friends and interacting and developing relationships with new people, she's kind of trying to figure out who she is. And she's using other people as a way to figure that out. You know what I mean? Try to find, like, create a new identity in a yeah. sense. And also with, with the boys where she dates um, Lucas Hedges' character, um, Danny, and then Chalamet's character Kyle, where she's trying to—I mean, when you date people, you try to—you're trying to figure out what you like in other people and what you would like to see in dating someone. But, and I think that this often happens with younger people is when you become infatuated with someone, sometimes you're likely to adapt the traits that that person has to make yourself more desirable. So, for example, she starts reading Howard Zinn's *A People's History of the United States* because Kyle reads it. You know what I mean? And then she. She says things that she doesn't mean because she thinks that these people will like her for it. She's changing her character in order to fit in with these people. I think the perfect line in the film to kind of um, illustrate that is Lady Bird. She says, I think it's the learning part of high school is over, which means now she wants to learn new things about life that have nothing to do with books and nothing to do with school, nothing to do with education. You know, She wants to lose her virginity. She wants to uh, experience new things. She wants to be in the drama club. She wants to smoke and drink and she wants to commit little petty crimes like steal a magazine. So she wants to do these things that she thinks will help her find herself. Yeah. And then she's driven by attention and she's driven by being cool for, for trying to date Kyle because Kyle has absolutely no redeeming qualities at all. Really? I mean, yes, his dad's going through, uh, through cancer, but he's he's a he's kind of a jerk, pretentious. He's pretentious. He's he a, uses Ladybird lies yeah, to her. Yeah, he lies to her. Um, and he doesn't really have any good qualities that you would want in a partner besides that hair. Yeah, but besides that hair, and he plays bass. Once girls <laughs> see a bass player, um, and so but she only wants him because he's cool. You know what I mean? Rather than with Danny, although yes, Danny is gay, but she had a real genuine connection with Danny, so it's more of a fit for her to find someone like that. But she's more blinded by the idea of dating the cool kid in school the subplot with danny is a really touching um uh, story because danny dates her 
in a very similar way to how Lady Bird rejects who she is and is trying to change who she is. Danny, even though he's he's gay, he dates Lady Bird because he doesn't want anyone to know that he's gay. He's terrified of even his family finding out. And in a way, he thinks Lady Bird is like a perfect cover for him. Like when he sees her in the dress before he, he picks her up for Thanksgiving, he's like, You're, my grandmother's going to love that dress. Like, like Lady Bird's a perfect fit to to use for his family to disguise who he really is. So he's kind of doing the same thing Lady Bird's doing. Yeah, because she disguises who she is by saying that that house belongs to her and that yeah. she lives in that big, beautiful house. Mm-hmm. The third act of this film is basically full of redemption. You know, Lady Bird is fighting with her desires to fix her life and get things back to where they used to be because she's experienced all these things that she thought would help her find herself, but they really didn't. They drove her away from her true path of how to find herself, which is just... Well, I think what Greta Gerwig is saying is accepting who you are, accepting where you come from and embracing it because that's how you create your own identity. That's how you become yourself. And so she ditches her. She ditches the cool kids who are skipping prom to go to a party. She goes and reunites with her best friend, Julie, and they make up and they go to prom together. Um, and then her and her mother eventually sort of make up where her mother and father drop her off at the airport to go to school, to go to New York. And as Lady Bird's boarding the plane, her mother comes running to, to try to say goodbye to her after shunning her because she already regrets the way she's been treating her. And Lady Bird kind of has the same feelings, too, because when she gets to New York, she finds the letters that her mother wrote for her. And then, um, like you talked about earlier, she goes to that party and gets uh, alcohol poisoning because she clearly doesn't want to handle the situation that she's in right now. And then she goes to the church and she kind of gets grounded from it and she realizes how much she really cares about Sacramento and how much she misses it and misses her mother and she she doesn't talk to her mother she she leaves her mother that very emotional voicemail though yeah I think when she goes to the church she goes there because it provides a connection to her past life in Sacramento because she went to Catholic school and so I think going to inside that church gave her a sense of uh, familiarity with um her her home and that's what made her truly realize and understand that she misses her home and that, yeah, she's in New York, but she understands that she loves Sacramento and she loves her family. And then that, then she leaves that voicemail for her mother. Yeah, I think Greta's just trying to tell us that it's great to have ambition and to want to do new things and experience new situations and cultures and, and life experiences and success. But it's also important to accept where you've come from, accept your past despite if you liked it or not, or if you have pain in your past or... If you don't think it was adequate to what you wanted your life to be, you can't change really anything about your past. So you have to come to terms with it in order to grow and become your own person. Yeah, we don't we don't choose where we are born. We don't choose choose who our family is. We don't choose our parents. And I've definitely been through a similar phase where you you don't like your parents and you're judgmental towards them and you're rebellious towards them, but you don't understand what they're doing for you day in day out every single day how much work they're putting into providing a comfortable life as possible for you. And you don't understand that until you're older. And then you really cherish it. Once you leave home, you understand everything your parents did for you and how much they loved you. Even if you were fighting, even if you guys were at odds or clashing, your parents did everything they could to make you happy. And then you, in the moment, you don't realize that. But when you're gone and you're away from home and you're living on your own, that really hits you hard. I really love the look of Ladybird. Because 
typically, even in movies where you have a lead actor or actress, and even if they're like unpopular or or kind of nerdy, they still are perfectly made up, so well dressed, and they just look like hair and makeup's perfect. But in Lady Bird, I don't even think she wears makeup at all in this movie. And actually, Sorsha had uh, pretty bad acne breakouts from makeup from a previous project. And instead of hiding it or trying to hide it with makeup, uh, the filmmakers and Greta Gerwig convinced her that it would actually be really great for the character and accurate to teenage years to have, you know, some of that acne coming up on screen to make it, you know, seem real and realistic because that's, you know, really what happens when you're a teenager and you're breaking out and you can't control it. Yeah, I think that shows the relatability of this film because acne is something nearly every young person deals with. And you never really see it portrayed in movies. And um, I love the look and the aesthetic of this film. We talked about earlier the cinematography and, and, and the nostalgic look, but also the color palettes are, are beautiful. And Greta based the aesthetics of this film off uh, Northern California painter Wayne Tabo's work. Um, and his style was he would paint just everyday objects, um, pastel colors, and he would also, there would always be like, a blend of blue somewhere and so there are a lot of shots of this like pastel colored look with with a blue so like either the sacramento river or there's a shot of a house with pastel colored house and this blue car just popped right there and so it's really uh a, a great homage to a local uh, painter this is also the highest grossing a24 film at the time a production company that we've talked about a lot so far it also broke temporarily the record held by Toy Story 2 for most fresh reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. With most fresh reviews on Rotten Tomatoes with 196 fresh reviews. And I think it's still at 99% right now. And Greta Gerwig was nominated for Best Director for this film. Yeah, and I think she won the Golden Globe for um, Best Picture Comedy or Musical. Yeah, it, yeah. it won a bunch of Golden Globes. And Saoirse won, won Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical for Golden Globe. But it's a, it's a fantastic movie and I think it's a movie that I think all young women should see. And even young men should see, um, because even if you're you're a guy, obviously you don't have similar experiences. You can still relate to the things that she's going through on a personal and emotional level. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over technology developments to provide you with the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped has been awesome. They sent us their performance packages. Thank you, Kyle, so much for hooking it up. This includes their luxury lawnmower groomer, weed whacker, as well as toners, deodorants, shirts, and boxer briefs. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code RaidersOfTheLost at checkout. Again, RaidersOfTheLost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. And this shouldn't just be an exclusive ad for just men ladies women if you got a boyfriend brothers siblings father cousins you need to get some gifts for a friend this is stuff that men and guys really really want in their life this is a gift that if they open up they'd be like no freaking way if i got this grooming package from manscape for christmas i would be through the moon winter is coming that means that we're all sitting at home and we gotta groom at some point so this is perfect for people who you know it's it's covid we're still in lockdown we're still quarantined we need to take care of our bodies gotta and look good on camera man <laughs> <laughs> we're telling you any guy would freak out if they got something from manscape.com i swear to god i have never used better clippers or buzzers in my life the briefs are awesome super comfortable shirts are super comfortable Highly recommend the brand. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. Next up, we have Call Me By Your Name, directed by Luca Guadagnino. 
and written by James Ivory based on the book by Andre Akiman. Led by Army Hammer, Timothy Chalamet, Michael Stuhlberg, and Amira Kassar, this film had a global box office of $41 million off a budget of $3.5 million. The film chronicles the blossoming and complicated love between Elio, a 17-year-old boy, and Oliver, a 24-year-old graduate student working as an intern for Elio's father for the summer at their vacation home in Italy. Call Me By Your Name, in my opinion, is truly a masterpiece in every sense of the word. The filmmaking, the characters, acting, cinematography, editing, the aesthetic. I love everything about this movie. It was my favorite movie to come out of 2017. I was absolutely blown away. We saw this in theaters. It was a beautiful experience to have in a movie theater. Um, I cried multiple times the first time, second, maybe third time I even saw this. It's it's really emotional, highly relatable, and again, it's just a beautiful film. I agree, although I put it on my number two on my list of 2017. Blade Runner 2049 was my number one. We've talked about in the past. But Call Me By Your Name, I think, is one of the best films about love I've ever seen. It centers upon the ideas of understanding who you are and accepting who you are and not and allowing yourself to feel what you feel and not repressing anything. And Luca is a very patient director. He takes his time, you know, crafting this world in the year 1983 in this beautiful setting of these tiny small villages like Crema in Italy. And he patiently builds this romance between Elio and Oliver. And this patience is is conveyed in uh, one of the early scenes between the two where Oliver asks Elio, what is there to do around the town? And Elio basically says, wait for summer to end. And this patience leads to an immense payoff when the two men finally reveal their feelings for each other, which takes about an hour into the film to happen. And this it makes this connection much more deserved. And it's, an, it's a great experience for the audience to finally see it. It's a really beautiful movie. It's just about two people falling in love. And the way they go about it is so atypical from what we usually see. Like you said, it doesn't happen until an hour into the movie because this film is its all about subtleties and behavior and the small micro-adjustments and hints we give other people to show our attraction for each other. And it's not a blatant, overt, no one's talking about, no one's saying their feelings out loud. People, like the, the characters behave how we behave in real life. You know what I mean? When we meet someone and we, and we want to, become intimate with them, we take our time and we, we do things and we act a certain way to show our affection and show that we're interested. And also there's also uncertainties when you, when you start to see someone and you're, you, you're unsure of how to, how to act and you want to do, you want to do things in the right way, but sometimes things don't work out the way you plan. Some of these feelings you're afraid to embrace. And I think that's one of the main things we'll talk about a little bit, but this film, I've seen so many reviews of people being critical about it being too slow and too long. And I understand that some people, you know, you don't like slow movies. You like fast paced, you like action. That's kind of like the era we're living in right now where a lot of these high budget action movies are coming out. And we, we, we're constantly inundated with quick dialogue, um, quick funny humor and like boom, 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 line, line, helicopter explosion. Here we go. But the whole point of film is escapism. And if you let it, a slowly paced film like Call Me By Your Name, and honestly, I'm not saying slowly in a negative way. I think it's a very effective tool in this film. It draws you into a new world. It 
turn off your phone and watch this movie. You, you got to eliminate distractions to watch a movie like this to actually experience it. Otherwise, you can't understand the true nature of the art that the filmmakers are creating. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it is the strong suit of this film is how they slowly um, show this romance blossom. And I think that one of my favorite parts about the film, and I know it is of yours, is the, is the setting of the film. This Italian village in, in 1983. And they, as the characters explore and go to new places and have experiences, you just kind of feel like you wish you were there with them. You wish you, I kind of wished I grew up in that villa. Oh, absolutely. Kind of. I do wish. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just the surroundings of these characters really pull you in. And, and Luca created this kind of dreamlike, dreamlike quality within the filmmaking and how he photographed everything. He actually shot the entire film with just a 35 millimeter lens, nothing else. And so I think that brings uh, a strong consistency to everything you visually see. Whereas if you go with like a long lens to a wide lens, you can see very different creative visuals. Whereas if since it's 35 the entire time, it, the entire film is kind of balanced visually. You know what I mean? And I think he really sets up the world in a profound way that makes you feel like you're actually living there with these characters and you actually really want to be there with them. Yeah, he does a beautiful job of blending in so many shots of like B-roll, of environments, of uh, the characters who aren't even like looking towards the camera or just kind of like doing something on their own. Like shots of like Elio like at his desk or like in bed, just the back of his or his back of his shoulders. He gets so many shots of the architecture of buildings, um, the house, the interiors, the exteriors of nature. Simple things like the bathing suits on the faucets. Um, it really pulls you into this atmosphere and this environment. You're right. And I think that he does that because those are things that most movies would never show. Most movies, they only show you what's important, what's vital to the story. Whereas he's trying to show you all these moments, all these images, and all these beats that, yes, it's not exactly relevant to the to the overall plot, but it's a part of experience and when you, if you lived in that villa, you would see your bathing suit drying on that faucet every day, and so you're. I think that's why he shows all these little things because those are little things. Those are little bites of life. Initially, Oliver and Elio seem like polar opposites when they're first introduced, and you know Oliver has this like very hunky American look about him. He's tall, blonde. He's a little, little jacked. He's tan. He's intelligent. He's very confident, and he he's has, also you can tell he has like a sexual nature about him. He yeah. knows who he is. He has a very deep and booming voice. Um, he's very laid back or cavalier. He he's definitely you can tell has grown into manhood because he's mid twenties. He's twenty four years old. Mm -hmm. Whereas Elio is this music prodigy. He's soft spoken, emotional. He's very private. Um, he still looks like a boy even though he's just becoming a man and he has like the wit and intelligence of someone beyond his years. So the biggest difference between the two of them is their life experience where, like I just said, Oliver has grown into manhood, whereas Elio is just finally experiencing adulthood and finally becoming a man. I think a way, a great way Luca shows this is when Elio is shaving in the mirror and he just shaves just his mustache area because that's the only area he can grow hair right now. And so it's a, a visual representation of how young, how young he is and how he's still this turning, he's still in the process of becoming an adult, whereas, like you said, Oliver already is an adult. And the chemistry between Army and, and Chalamet is absolutely off the charts in this film. That is dynamic. And the, the thing about it is they're both uh, heterosexual men in real life, and they signed up for this film as gay lovers. And the best and 
the way that Luca wanted to break the ice for these two men to give them that intimate and romantic feeling for each other is they had one rehearsal for this movie when they got to set uh, in Italy. And the first and only scene they rehearsed was they went into the yard on the back of the house and he had them rehearse just the most passionate, intimate lovemaking scene where they just had to make out basically in the grass for several minutes. And Luke is just telling them to get more passionate and passionate <laughs> and passionate. And the crew's all around watching Passion. them. And then um, uh, slowly Luca had him and the rest of the crew just drift away and they all left the area. And then after several more minutes of passion and making out, Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet just looked up and no one was around them at all. <laughs> so it's just the perfect icebreaker. Yeah, that's a great way to break the ice. Because that's what they sign up for, you know. Yeah. You gotta get, you gotta get this going. Let's do this. And I understand that um, some people had a problem with the fact that both the leads are actual hetero, actually heterosexual in real life. But also, the director Luca is a gay man, and I think that if he believes it's it's necessary for these two actors to play the roles, he I don't think he cared what their sexuality is in real life. He just wanted the best actors possible for these particular parts. And he felt that Chalamet and Hammer were the right choices for these roles in particular. And so I don't think it's a problem, um, especially because Luca is a gay man and also a gay filmmaker, which is a great thing. I don't have an issue with it at all. I mean, they're actors. That's, that's the, at the end of the story, at the end of the day, they're actors. I'm sure there are plenty of gay men and women who play straight characters in film. Um, obviously, I don't have the experiences of, of a homosexual, so I can't really give a voice to that demographic and those kinds of people. But for me, I don't have an issue with it. Yeah, me too. As you said, the chemistry between these two guys is palpable, but at first it's not so. So for the first half of the film, Elio seems to not really like Oliver at all, and he even calls him arrogant. So why do you think he seems to be butting heads with Oliver in a way? When I watched the first act of this film... I noticed that a lot of it is time spent of Elio observing Oliver. He's kind of just watching from a distance. Like you said, he does call him arrogant. Maybe he uh, doesn't exactly... Arrogante. Arrogante uh, at times, especially when he says later and stuff like that. Um, I think it's because Elio sees so much about Oliver that he wishes he was that at first he comes to despise Oliver over all these traits that he, he wishes he had, like the confidence... And the ex- wearing the necklace, the neck, the Jewish yeah. necklace, wearing the Star of David, um, all these things that again we're talking about life experience and where Oliver has grown into adulthood and Elio still becoming a man. That I think it's because Elio wishes he was at the stage in life that Oliver was at. That's a really great point. I can totally agree with that. I also think that the reason why he doesn't seem to like Oliver at first is because I think that when Elio starts interacting with Oliver in, in sees him like you said he observes him multiple times i think that deep down elio um finds him attractive and is is feeling desires feelings towards him and he doesn't understand it because this is obviously the first man he's ever had intimate feelings about and so i think since he doesn't understand what he's feeling he rejects it and so he becomes antagonistic towards oliver because he's kind of rejecting what his body desires. One of this film's main themes you brought up is desire. Elio's character, his main journey in this film, I think, is that he begins developing these desires for another man and he begins repressing them and he tries to shut them out at first. And he doesn't really understand them and 
he's trying to make sense of what he's feeling and he's struggling and trying to come to terms with what exactly he's experiencing and what exactly he's desiring when he's around Oliver. Exactly. And the per- the perfect example of that is when they're outdoors at the volleyball yeah. match playing and um Oliver is playing volleyball, he comes over to get a drink of water and he caresses Elio's shoulder. And there's a couple seconds where Elio just looks at the shoulder. And he doesn't know how to react to Oliver yeah, touching him. Yeah, he starts him. rubbing it. And yeah. so then he reacts uh, like in a spastic way and tries to back off from him. And then Oliver again comes back and puts both arms on his shoulder. And this is Oliver throwing out a sign like, I'm attracted to you and I want to see if you're attracted to me or see if this is something that you'd be interested in, basically. Mm-hmm. And like you just said, Elio still doesn't know how to come to terms with his desires that are that he's been trying to maybe suppressing or he's afraid to to embrace He's afraid to follow those those feelings, which he's feeling for Oliver. And unfortunately, this forces them two to never really connect until an hour into the film. Because it, Oliver at this point reala- realizes, like, holy crap, I just freaked this kid out. Yeah. This guy has nothing, not, wants nothing to do with me, so I might as well just live out the rest of the summer like this never happened. Exactly. In the first half of this film, Luca uses this brilliant symbolism of apricots which are prevalent throughout this movie. If you watch the film closely and upon repeat viewings, in the first half of the film, whenever Elio and Oliver interact in a scene, apricots are always visible or they proceed a shot of them precede the scene themselves. So it can be the apricot trees, it can be apricots the fruit actually being eaten or on the tables. Or it can be the apricot juice, which can be sitting on a table between them, or it can be either of them can be drinking the apricot juice. And so Luca sprinkles apricots throughout the romance of the film. The symbolism of apricots are not an accident. Luca's a very intelligent filmmaker. And I believe that the apricots in this film, apricot represents Elio's desire. And it's kind of like, in a way, the forbidden fruit. Having apricots shown in all these scenes where Elio and Oliver are interacting are showing, literally showing Elio's desire, and it's Oliver. And so the fruit relates to desire. And then there's actually a really great scene where Oliver is explaining the root history of the word apricot and where it comes from. I think the author put this monologue in the book because... Yes, it relates to the apricot, which is desire, but also by dissecting the historical roots of the word apricot, the different pronunciations of apricot in different ancient languages, you say the word cock in different in different words. The word cock is said multiple times. And so I have Army Hammer's lines written right here. So it goes, Oliver explains, quote, It's a long story, so bear with me. Many Latin words are derived from the Greek, In the case of apricot, however, it's the other way around. Here, the Greek takes over from the Latin. The Latin word was precocum, from precocer, and precook, to ripen early, as in precocious, meaning premature. And then he says, the Byzantines, to go on, borrowed precox and precoca, or barococci, and, and then finally, the Arabs inherited al-barakok. And so Oliver, by explaining the roots words of, of apricot's history, is literally saying the word cock multiple times, which is a metaphor for 
both he and Elio's sexual desires. That's good stuff right there. Yeah, man. I didn't notice it until I think the second time I watched this movie, and then I just noticed he kept saying the word cock over and over again. I never picked up on that. Yeah, so I think it's. <laughs> I think it, it really it's very is. very subtle. It's a very subtle metaphor for who they are. Yeah, and again, I think the peach later on represents the bridge and connection between them succumbing to their feelings and their desires, but we'll get into that in, in a little bit. One of the main differences from the novel that Luca threw in was the symbolism and story plots of archaeology and history. So the professor digging up the statue from the water, going over the cataloging of, of the images of statues. And so I think the significance of archaeology and history relate to the idea of history, our histories, our personal histories, and our past. We all have gone through relationships. We've all been in love in the past. We all have histories with other people, very intimate histories with other people who are no longer in our lives, but they're in our history. Or do they they become frozen? Because they kind of do, in a way, become frozen in time from our point of view. Because So say I have a relationship with someone and we broke up years ago. If I look back on it, all I know is that person from back then. I don't know who they are now, now at this present time. But for me, they're kind of frozen like a statue in time um, from my perspective. You know what I mean? And so I think that the, the ideas and themes of archaeology relate to that relationships we have with the past from our past experiences with other relationships. And to bounce that off with the archaeological immersion of the statues coming out of the water, um, at this point in the story, Oliver and Elio are kind of like going back and forth. They're kind of you know, at times bickering, but also they're trying to be polite and nice to each other at the same time. Elio holds out the arm of the statue to Oliver, and maybe that's a, a sign of them both. Obviously, they're making the truce, but also they're both accepting their pasts and connecting their pasts, and they're connecting the time, like you just said, frozen in time of, of their new budding relationship, which will come in a little bit. And just to, to speed up a little bit is towards the end of the film— you know, Oliver has to leave at some point, and Elio may- basically spends the third act of the film trying to freeze this period of time in his life and to freeze these moments and keep them, like you like you can say, like statues in history. Yeah, exactly, because this whole film kind of feels like it's just a series of memories for a person. You know what I mean? It feels like Elio is looking back on this summer and what he remembers and what his experiences were and so it feels like this movie is from someone's past just from watching it already. So let's move on to uh, when they start to build their intimate relationship. And it first starts when, or first Elio decides to get the confidence of when Elio's mother is reading the, the story of the French 16th Tale of the Night, which was in German, which she's translating, um, who doesn't know whether to speak or die. And... The woman in the story says it's better to speak, but she's on her guard and senses a trap, which is a perfect description of Elio. Who's Elio is, is a terrified to tell Oliver how he feels, and he's afraid yeah. to speak just like the knight is. Yeah, like I talked about earlier, where this whole film, a lot of it is about being afraid to embrace your desires. And in the story, the knight doesn't speak, but Elio eventually does. And this happens when there's going to pick up some papers in town, and they come to that World War One statue, the Battle of Piave, 
where Elio finally confesses to Oliver his feelings for him, basically, and that despite being so talented and so intelligent and knowing everything about everything, he knows nothing about the things that matter. And he gives Oliver this confession. Luca shot it beautifully. They're on opposite sides of this big monument. So just like in the story, Elio is staying on his guard and senses a trap despite at this moment confessing his feelings for him. So he's, he's doing it from a distance, from a safe distance, behind the fence, behind this giant monument. And it's this terrific long take. Probably the best shot in the entire movie. This, this beautiful long take has a lot of different moving parts in it with characters in the background and cars and a bus and everything. And it's my, I think it's my favorite scene in the entire movie. And it's very subtle. It is my, one of my favorite scenes too, where Elio doesn't go, come out and really say it, but Oliver knows what, uh, Oliver understands what he's telling him. And I think the reason why Elio doesn't strictly speak it out loud is because he's afraid of how Oliver will react. And also, they're kind of afraid of the surroundings. They're afraid of anyone hearing, and it's not a, uh, it wasn't a great time and a place for gay people back then. And so he's still trying to be a little secretive about it. This leads to their first intimate moment together. But before that, they go on this amazing bike ride, which makes you fall more in love with this village. And my, one of my favorite moments is it's completely irrelevant to the story, but it means everything to the setting. Can I guess what you're going to say? Yeah. When they race? No. Oh, never mind. <laughs> it's when um, they've been biking for a while and they're they're out of breath and they're thirsty and they stop by that small house and there's an older woman picking green beans and Elio just goes up to her and asks her for a glass of water and then she goes inside and brings him each a glass of water and it, it shows you that like this village in in this town and this time is like like you can't you wouldn't do that anywhere nowadays like where would you do that you couldn't walk up to someone's house and be like hey can i have a glass of water can you imagine like maybe in farm country but like knocking yeah. on your neighbor's door to yeah. ask for water they'd be like you want water exactly so it's a really uh really nice little tidbit to show what exactly this world they're in is what it's what it was like to be in this place and to live here and how how residents re- re- interacted with each other you know what i mean yeah and just to go back real quickly and how you said it wasn't a good time for uh, homosexuality um you know this is 1980s and this is europe and italy especially we we're used to a lot of um films about gay romance or um gay characters like milk carol uh, moonlight which we'll talk about in a little bit brokeback mountain where a lot of these characters a lot of these stories they're faced with intense obstacles of social pressure or violence um uh sh- being shamed and I think one of the strengths of this film is, yes, there are you know some obstacles that they have to face in terms of being uh, persecuted for, for their feelings and desires and their um, uh, sexual orientations. But Luca does a great job. You know, we're in these, spending most of the film in these small towns, these small villages, so it doesn't really become a factor besides the fact that... It, it does, so it doesn't really become a factor, and especially because um, Elio's family is very welcoming and supportive of any decision he makes in his life. So it's a very welcoming experience for anyone who's been persecuted in their life. I think that's a, a strength to the film as well because this film portrays homosexuality as these characters don't face persecution for being gay. And also, they even changed this, the time of the story. It was supposed to be 1987, but they changed it to 83 because they wanted to set the story before the AIDS epidemic. They didn't want there to be any harm 
or persecution or um, negative repercussions done to these characters for just being themselves that you would see in all these other movies. But by making this the film in the, the conflict small in scope, they kept the story just about um, the emotional connection between these two characters, which I think worked in its favor. So after Elio confesses his feelings for Oliver at the monument, Elio takes Oliver to his secret spot, which is a very beautiful scene, but it's also important to Elio in his character because him showing Oliver his secret spot that he doesn't take anybody else, where he only goes by himself to read books and he can't even count how many books he's read there. This is basically Elio opening his heart to Oliver, opening his emotions and feelings to to Oliver, and basically showing Oliver what his true desires are and letting him into his life. That's a great point. And then that leads to their first kiss, which is a combination of uh, romantic and awkward and, and funny. And just like it was, it's not Elio's first kiss, but it's his first kiss with a man. So it is like it's his first kiss in his life. And you feel like the awkwardness and the uncertainty that he's feeling, you know what I mean? But also that the desire that he has and, how badly he wants this, and he he seems to be at them in that moment very happy because he's finally being himself. But for the time being, this really doesn't go anywhere after this, and um, Oliver ends up kind of I wouldn't say shunning Elio, but he kind of starts to ignore him, keeps a distance, keeps a distance because he doesn't want to affect his relationship. Obviously, he's there basically to be an assistant to his father. He wants to at this moment keep it professional, and he doesn't want to corrupt. He, what he thinks will corrupt uh, Elio. Um, he even says something like, uh, we haven't done anything to be ashamed of yet. We should keep it that way. Mm-hmm. And this forces Elio to desire Oliver even more. And it's all he can think of, even when he starts to date Marcia, who is another French person like Elio vacationing in Italy. She speaks f- French fluently um, in English too. But she also vacations there, and they develop a romance. But this is kind of like Elio's fill-in for his true desires. He's trying to feed his desire, but and he even has sex with Marcia a few times. But it's still it's not satiable for him, and it doesn't even compare to what he wants from Oliver. And so Elio loses his Virginia to Marcia, and then he can't take the. The, the silence anymore. He can't take the distance from Oliver, despite having this budding romance with this beautiful young French woman. He also thinks that Oliver is going out on the town and probably have um, sleeping with women. Yeah, and he even calls him a traitor. Hmm. Calls him a traitor multiple times in bed um, because he's just waiting for Oliver to take the next step in what he wants to happen. And eventually, Elio can't take it anymore, so he writes that note. Can't take the silence. I need to talk to you. And he leaves the note for Oliver to find in the morning. And then he finds a note on his desk that says, um, grow up, see you at midnight, which is hysterical. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so now we have to deal with, now Elliot has to deal with probably the longest day of his entire life <laughs> where he has to, he basically just doesn't know what to do with himself. And he's just sitting around waiting for the hours to go by. He's constantly looking at his watch. He looks he, at his yeah. watch immediately when he reads the note. Even when he's, um, when Marcia comes over, he looks at his watch when they're in the pool and then when they go up to that attic to have sex, as she's lying on the bed, this girl is literally lying on his bed, but then he, he takes his watch off and 
he places it carefully on the table nearby to keep an eye on it. So because, he can constantly look at the watch. Yeah, because all he cares about is midnight, and he can't wait for it. And then I love this scene where they finally are fully intimate with each other, and it's a really beautiful, tender, playful. It's it, he has, and Elio has this kind of like naivety about him, this innocent quality to him. He's very nervous. He doesn't know what to do. Like with Marcia, he's fine, but with Oliver, it's completely different, and. Oliver kind of has to take the lead for him. And Luca shot this in just a couple of very long takes, and it's really well done. And you can really see the chemistry between Army and Timothy really get stepped up a notch in this scene. This is their first night having sex together and finally connecting emotionally and physically finally, which is something that Elio has been wanting for so long, and I'm sure Elio wanted it, and I'm sure Oliver wanted it too. And the way Luca shot this is he didn't actually show any explicit sex in this film. In the novel, the scenes are, are very explicit, very drawn out, and very detailed. But Luca chose not to show the actual sex, and instead, when they are together on the bed and they're, they're taking each other's clothes off, Luca pans the camera outside to the trees, like, billowing in the wind. And... I, I read that some people were upset about this. They wanted to see the full-on um, sex scene. Luca explained that he chose not to show it because he didn't want the audience to lose any kind of connection to the characters. By keeping that hidden, you're constantly relating to them on a deeper level. Not because of the sex, but because of the emotional and intimate connection between the characters. And he felt that he was worried that if he showed the sex... Um, it might make some people lose their relatability to them. Oddly, in the, in the morning after they spend their first night together, Elio becomes very distant and quiet. Oliver kind of doesn't understand why he's reacting the way he is reacting. He feels like he may have maybe emotionally harmed him some way or yeah, something. Yeah, he's afraid he messed him up. This point is is odd because throughout the f entire film, Oliver is this very confident, charismatic guy, but this is the first time we see... Oliver is truly vulnerable and this is probably something that he really has been hiding his entire life deep down inside of him and it's finally come out his true vulnerable vulnerable personality and you just tell just the expressions on his face and he's a lot more calm and he's very he's worried he's, he's worried about what he's done to upset Elio and they go for that swim and they swim very far apart they don't even swim near each other and then they come back, and obviously he uh, he perks them right up. Yeah. But um, I think that Elio is probably being so distant here because Elio, you can guess or assume, is is finally fully in love with Oliver, and he really has a strong connection, and he realizes that it's only temporary, and Oliver is going to be leaving in a few weeks, and you know they wasted all his time, but also it's going to end, and he doesn't maybe doesn't want to get too emotionally involved. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's why he's so distant because he knows that this person I'm falling in love with is going to be gone from my life and I'm probably never going to see him again. And so he's just become filled with despair about it. But he's also still full of these sexual desires and impulses and obviously that infamous peach scene, which is in the book. And um, I know Luca said that he had thought about cutting it and uh, he, the way, the reason he kept it in is because obviously it's a very important scene to the to the novel and all fans of the book. But also he wanted to make sure that it was something that was possible. So he said that he tested it himself, 
and that he had Timothy test him out himself, and they both confirmed that it's possible. So that they had a, they decided to go for it. Yeah. So Timothy Chalamet masturbated with a peach for real. They yeah. both did. <laughs> hey, I'm I mean sure if I was like 15, 16, and I mean if I had a peach full of hormones, mean, yeah, yeah, I might have tried it. And this peach scene it marks the point where both Elio and Oliver, are, you know, succumbing to their feelings. And again, I said earlier, for me, it, it's it acts to me like a bridge between them emotionally where. Oliver obviously, I mean, Elio uses the peach to, you know, take care of himself. And then Oliver ups the ante and goes to take a bite of the peach after he finds out what's been done to it. And I I know in the book, he actually eats the entire peach and says that he wants part of him inside of him forever. But they cut that, obviously, from the movie. But then Elio breaks down crying, asking why he's doing this to him. And it's hard. It's it's easy to interpret that in different ways. And when I see that, I think that this is Elio emotionally breaking down because someone finally cares about him so much the way that he's wanted someone to care about him so much in that he cares about Elio as much as Elio cares about Oliver. I think that Elio breaks down here because he loves Oliver so much and can't stop thinking about how Oliver is going to leave soon. And from Elio's point of view, it doesn't seem that Oliver is really considering that he's leaving. And so I think that when he says, why are you doing this to me? It's kind of like, why are you fucking with me? Why are you messing with me? Why are you, why are you playing with my heart? You know what I mean? So I think that's why he reacts that way, which makes Oliver realize, oh, I, I'm not being respectful to the fact that this is going to end soon and I should be. Yeah, and this kind of connects to the whole theme or the whole title of the movie, Call Me By Your Name in that very iconic scene after their first night of, of making love where Oliver asks Elio to call me by your name and I'll call me by your I'll call you by mine and I interpret this as I said earlier where they both kind of or Elio saw things about Oliver that he wishes he was and you know you can say that also Oliver probably sees things about Elio that he wishes he was and they they kind of both envy each other for for what they are and who they are and in a sense, this is a way of getting over that jealousy, and they're both accepting each other into their lives, and now they can experience, and now they're both, they both feel worthy now of being loved by the other person. I think that they do the name trade because it represents them giving themselves up to the other person. So Elio's giving himself up to Oliver, and Oliver's giving himself up to Elio. The third act of this film is very beautiful. Oliver has to take a trip for research for the university, so he's leaving the And then house, he's gone for good. And then he has to go back to America for good. And so Elio goes with him on this trip, and they have a wonderful time. They have a great trip together. Um, and again, the music in this film is fantastic, and Luca picks so many great songs, uh, a combination of like 80s pop music and classical music, a lot of piano songs. It's actually a lot of the music that he grew up listening to. There's a song called... Love My Way by the, Psychedel- by the Psychedelic Furs, which is played twice in this movie. The first time it's played is when they're, before they're intimate together, where Oliver's dancing with the Italian girl, and Elio's just watching from a distance, smoking a cigarette, and, and it's an interesting scene because Elio seems kind of apathetic towards Oliver, or upset with him almost, or he's just watching Oliver... And it maybe kind of looks like he wishes he could either be the girl dancing or wishes that he could be Oliver. And then the next time it plays is when they're on their trip 
in that other town in Italy, that other city, and they find those Italians playing the same song outside of their car, and they're drunk and having a great time. And again, he watches Oliver dance with another Italian woman, but this time he's content and he's happy, and he's finally free, and he's finally there with Oliver. When Oliver's dancing with the girl in the, the like the outdoor nightclub, it's the first time that we truly see how Elio feels about him. Because when Elio's sitting there and he's watching Oliver dance, you can see on his face he's he's upset and he's disturbed by it. Taking he's just chain smoking his cigarette. And you can see there's tears in his eyes. And then his friends ask him to dance and he says, I'll go later. And so that's the first moment I think that he shows us how he feels about Oliver. The third act is is they're kind of like playing couple for the weekend. But ultimately, you know, this this relationship, it always had a time limit. And this getaway together, yes, it was so happy and and they their love really grew in this, but it ends very it ends it seems to end right before it started. It barely even got going. Yeah, and that emotional train scene where we have that beautiful long take uh starting from the back at Chalamet as he watches the train go by, as Elia watches the train go by, and it's very emotional to watch, and it's sad. And Chalamet's performance in this movie is remarkable, and this I know people criticize him a lot. They say he's like just like moody and has no emotions, but Chalamet is an incredible actor and has immense depth, and this scene is so telling and calling his mother on the phone to pick him up, and it gets me every single time and it's it's so sad to watch that like you just said this relationship and this love just started and it's over before it even began yeah and they can't even say anything to each other they're so emotional on the goodbye all they do is hug and there's no dialogue spoken but i agree i think that this is obviously chalamet's star making role but he's such a talented actor he's so expressive he can emote so much it's so it's a rare thing and there's a reason why he's been oscar nominated twice by now and he obviously carries this movie, and he's he's going to go down as one of the biggest actors there is. Yeah, and if there's an antagonist in this film, there's a bad guy. It's time. Summer ends. Summer's over. It's only a certain amount of time, and seasons will change, and Elio has to—I mean, Oliver has to leave Elio, so time is the real antagonist in this movie. Yeah, and I think when he has that talk with his father, and he gives that— his father gives that amazing monologue. What he's telling him is that, you yes, you feel horrible. You feel you're in pain and you're suffering right now. But that doesn't mean that you should block yourself off and you should shut yourself off from feeling these things because it's a beautiful thing that you did experience this and had this relationship with someone. And even though it's over and they're gone, that doesn't mean that you close yourself off because that's what makes us human. And you have to feel bad because that's part of life. You know, love's complicated. Love doesn't work out sometimes. And you have to be able to accept the tragedies of your life and then move on. And not repressing how you feel, but accepting it and taking it in and then learning from it and growing from it. And he tells Elio that he's too smart not to know that what he had with Oliver was very special and that um, Stahlberg, this is an amazing monologue by Stahlberg, great actor, and um, his character had never experienced anything like that in his life, no matter all the years he's lived and 
the wisdom he's gained. He never got, he said he came close, but never had what they had. And this scene, this monologue, it reminds me every time of Google Hunting with Robin Williams. Oh, talking yeah. To, yeah. Talking to Matt Damon, talking to Will Hunting. And it's a very powerful speech. And I'm surprised he didn't get like an Oscar nomination for this or at least something because this, this speech was one of the most moving parts in the film. Yeah, I, I agree. And then after that, we cut to winter and some time has passed. And we're told this not just from the weather, but Elio's look and appearance is completely different. He's. He's got a new fashion aesthetic. He's got new hair, and so a, a quite amount, quite a fair bit amount of time has passed since Oliver left. And he seems, you know, content. He seems like he's, you know, yeah. moving on as best as he can. Mm-hmm. And then Oliver calls, and he informs Elio that he's getting in, getting married. He's gonna get married. Probably, he says maybe married in the spring. Obviously, it's a it's a tragic blow for Elio, and you can see it on his face and and his reaction. But also, I think that Elio kind of tests Oliver here where he calls Oliver Elio. He calls him by his name. Elio, Elio, Elio. And then Oliver replies Oliver. And so I think that Elio was testing if he still loved him. And Oliver obviously still does love him very much, and that's why he responded with Oliver. And then we have that beautiful ending shot of uh, Elio staring into the fireplace and... We have the Stefan Stevens song, Visions of Gideon, playing the entire time. And it's while credits roll up during this, it's like a two and a half minute take. And it's not something you should miss. And you should stay and watch the entire thing. If you you don't switch off from Amazon, don't switch off from Netflix, watch this entire thing because it's an amazing performance by Chalamet, just this two and a half minutes where he emotionally lives out the entire relationship. Of him and Oliver, in my opinion, when I watch this, every time you can see the stages of their relationship, the the peaks and the valleys, the plateaus, the ups and downs, and the final climaxes, and the pain, and you can see towards the end, he gets very angry and upset, and he's, he's holding back all these tears, and then he finally has a, a look of possible acceptance, or maybe it's a look of, I'll see him again sometime or someday, and that... It's either maybe maybe he's letting go or maybe he's just holding on to more hope. Yeah, it's a, a powerful scene. And he actually, at the last moment, glances at us, the viewers, for a moment. Yeah, it breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, it breaks the fourth wall. It's a great little moment. And it's a powerful song to put on with, this, with, the, with the image of Elio crying because, like you said, the lyrics of the song actually pertain to a breakup and about how... Like some of the lines are, I have kissed you for the last time. Is it a video? And I think it's kind of saying that is is it even real anymore? Is this love gone now or is it just is it just memories? Like is it a video? Is it just something I remember? Did it even really happen? Um, is it a reality still? Or is it just memories from my past? And so, I mean, this movie is a brilliant discussion and commentary on on love and, and the loss of love and growth through that. Elio speaks uh, English, French, and Italian in this film. And Chalamet is actually fluent in French in real life. And then he picked up on and learned Italian for the movie. As well as he learned a lot of those classical piano pieces for the film and guitar. Despite there being various sex scenes in the movie, Army Hammer said that the most uncomfortable scene he felt during the filmmaking was when he's dancing at that outdoor club 
because he had to basically just dance with no music, like kind of by himself, and just he said he was very uncomfortable doing it. That makes sense because the dancing's pretty weird in that movie. It is weird. It doesn't really <laughs> go with the music. Yeah, not at all. They originally wanted to do full frontal nudity in this movie, but both Hammer and Chalamet uh, refused to do it and put in their contract that they wouldn't have to do it, which is just kind of like an American thing. Obviously, uh, European countries are much more open to sex- sexuality and nudity in film and TV, but it's just something about America where full frontal nudity, for men especially, is just a big no-no. It's ironic because women can get naked all the time, but then men don't want to get naked. So it's, it is ironic with America. In an interview on Quota Dent in 2016, Timothy Chalamet revealed that Army Hammer suffered wardrobe malfunctions from the short shorts he wore throughout the entire movie, and his testicles had to be digitally edited out of some of the short some of the scenes as a result. <laughs> He's wearing booty shorts this whole movie. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 for 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get your movie posters and has been for years. They've been great to work with. They're sponsoring our new giveaway contest. And they offer great options of original designs, framing, backlight, canvas, even plaque designs. Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today at MoviePosters.com. The last film of this episode will be Moonlight, directed and written by Barry Jenkins in 2016 based on a story by Terrell Elvin McCraney. The film stars Mahershala Ali, Naomi Harris, Trevante Rhodes, Alex R. Hibbert, and Ashton Sanders. It had a box office of $65 million global on a $1.5 million budget and won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Chiron, an African-American growing up in Florida, struggles with his identity and sexuality while experiencing the everyday struggles of childhood, adolescence, and burgeoning adulthood. This movie is emotionally devastating. One of the most powerful in-theater experiences I've had in, in several years. I remember I walked out of the theater like I just got hit by a truck. It was, it's such a powerful and profound film. Obviously one best picture, but it's one of the best movies of the last 10 years. Yeah, um, it's truly an essential American film. And Barry Jenkins paints a beautiful picture of a tragic life. A tragic life that's not because of the character Chiron. Um, it's because of his surroundings and what they had done to him. Throughout the film, we, we watch the innocence and potential of a young boy stripped away basically from his upbringing, his emotionally abusive and drug-addicted mother, bullies, a society that rejects him, friends that reject him. Uh, and it ends up with him forcing himself to create this new persona to protect himself. Throughout his childhood, he had no love in his life. His mother never loved him. His, his mother... Uh, was a serious crack addict and his father is absent and he has very few friends and most of the boys want to beat up on him all the time. Young Chiron Little, he's afraid of the world. He's afraid of other, other people. He's afraid of speaking and all he wants to do is leave. He's very similar to Lady Bird. He just wants to get out of his house. He wants to get out of his life. And it's a, it's a very tragic life. And it's actually very similar to the director Barry Jenkins' life. His mother was also an abusive crack addict. And so this, in uh, although it's adapted from a play, this very much is a story about Jerry, Barry Jenkins' life. And Barry broke this up into three chapters. We have Little, Chiron, 
and black. And all three parts are of the same character in childhood, adolescence, and then adulthood. And each one played by a different actor. And this film reminds me of a lot like Boyhood. But this film captures more of an emotional journey of a character and a person rather than what Boyhood to me is more like a chronicle of a life, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that setting it up with this three-act structure of the three different ages is what makes this movie so it works so well because they they basically show you everyone, all of us as people, we evolve and we transform and we, and we become different people over time based upon our experiences, based upon our choices. And so in many ways, myself right now, I'm much different than who I was when I was 20, who's much different than who I was when I was eight. We, we evolve as people into, diff- into different people, and this film illustrates that. Yeah, and so Chiron evolves in different ways for basically self-protection and also self-identity. And much like Lady Bird, and also just like in Call Me By Your Name, we're dealing again with, with identity and how to become the person you want to be or escape your life or knowing what path to take in life. And in the first act, when we were following Little, like you said, Little is this young boy. He doesn't fit in with any of the other boys. He gets bullied. Um, his mother doesn't care about him. He spends the majority of the act, the first act, with his head down, doesn't speak much, doesn't get more than three or four words out at a time. Um, but he eventually kind of gets taken in by this character, Juan, who's phenomenally played by Mahershala Ali. And my God, what a performance this guy gives. And he deservedly won an Oscar for this role, despite being in the film for less than 20 minutes. And why does Juan help Little? Why does he help pull him out of that hole, out of that drug den? And, you know, he, he probably sees a little bit of himself in the boy in Little. And maybe he was doing the exact same thing at his age when he grew up in Cuba, hiding out from bullies, running away from home, hiding from his mother. They both hate their mothers when they were young, but grow to miss them as they're older and adults. But Juan's also a drug dealer, and he's the drug dealer that his mother gets gets her drugs from. And so Juan is part of this vicious circle in Little's life where he wants to try to amend the wrongs that have happened to him because he's helped cause a lot of that pain in his life. Yeah, Juan wants to become a kind of a father figure to Chiron. He gives him advice. He teaches him how to swim. But ultimately, like you said, he's part of the part of the problem. And Little is slowly learning what is what his mother's doing to herself. And in this chapter, she's beginning to become addicted to crack. And we get hints of this where she has a guy over and she hides the, the drug paraphernalia. One day, Chiron comes home from school and the TV's gone because she obviously sold it. And so Chiron's slowly understanding that his mom is a drug addict. And even though he's grown to, to love this this man Juan and looks up to him now, he's beginning to put two and two together that Juan helps supply his mom with the drugs that are ruining his life. This moment is actually a big moment for Juan because when Chiron confronts him about this, 
Juan breaks down and cries because he's ashamed of himself for the first time in his life. Because as a as a dealer and as a trapper, all he's ever done is 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 sell and make money, and he's he's been a thug and he's been like the hardest guy around, and he runs like a certain amount of turf in the area, but he's never really seen the true dis- destruction that he causes upon other people within their families, and then seeing Chiron as the victim of one of his clients really really breaks down Juan's character. Yeah, and it's something that he has to battle with as a character, Juan. And this is clear when Juan goes to check up on his uh, dealers at the at his block and he sees the car, you know, there's a rule where, you know, they're not supposed to be smoking crack on near where they're selling it to draw attention. And he goes and confronts this car of these two people smoking crack and it's Chiron's mother and he confronts her and tells her that shouldn't she shouldn't she be raising her son? Who's gonna raise her son? And then she, all she can do is laugh at him. And what are you gonna raise my son? Are you gonna do it? And she smokes the crack in his face and laughs and says. And basically, she's saying you're just as bad as I am. So who are you to tell me what to do? In this moment, we also see that they both care about little, and they both know little secret that he's he's a young gay boy. Little doesn't really understand it yet. But in this in this fight, Paula makes fun of Little the way he walks, like the, the feminine way that he walks. And then also there's another a small hint about Little's true sexual nature in a, a scene at school where um, they're in the, like that dance room and the teacher has music playing and all the kids. I think it's like a free time to dance and do whatever you want. And most of, the, most of the girls are dancing and having fun. Some of the boys are like, they're not really dancing, but they're, they're having fun in some way. But Chiron is dancing very passionately and with a very feminine quality to it. And I think this is a, a, a small hint to one of the reasons why the other kids pick on him. They know he's different. And it's also a hint to what his real sexual nature is. Yeah, and there's another hint too where... There's a scene where the the kids are all all the boys are playing soccer. They're kicking that really old beaten up soccer ball around, and um, they're all just kind of like messing with Chiron a lot until Chiron eventually walks away. But then his friend Kevin comes and follows him, and Kevin's a, a prevalent figure in his entire life in both chapters of this film in the story. And in this scene, Kevin's trying to explain to Chiron that he's got to stick up for himself and he's got to show the other kids that he's not afraid of confrontation that he he's not afraid to back down and, and he's got to be be able to hold his own around all the hard. kids and so they have this little wrestling match on the ground and this might this again is like like the dance scene it's one of the only times where Chiron kind of connects emotionally with something or somebody and um when Kevin gets up after they're wrestling Chiron just has this look on his face of like that that was like an amazing experience for me and he seems kind of blown away and um he can't. He can't even blink. Is he's just feeling so many things at the moment, at the hands of of doing something um, physical with with Kevin, and obviously this will lead to more things later on with Kevin in the film. I think that this little wrestling match they have is the first of three moments of intimacy between Chiron and Kevin throughout the film. We'll get to the other two when we get to those chapters, but I think that this is the first moment of intimacy because young boys. They're physical. They fight. They're aggressive. And even with, like, if, like, a boy has a crush on a girl, he'll, like, push her or, like, 
kind of be mean to her. And so this is a way of young boys expressing themselves by being violent and by by fighting and wrestling. And so I think that Chiron and Kevin are, in, in a way, expressing intimacy as children in this wrestling scene. But still, Chiron has so much that he has to deal with at such a young age. And you talked about earlier how he comes home and the TV's gone. Every night that he comes home, he doesn't know what he's going to expect. He, there's another time there's no hot water, so he has to heat up water on the stove and put it in a tub. And it's a really emotional scene. It's, I think it's the last shot in the little chapter is him sitting in the tub by himself, home alone, in this hot water tub that he had to just fill up by heating water on the stove. And it's it's a very powerful moment. And it's also reflective of um, when Juan talks about the moonlight, when boys, the black boys are in moonlight, they look blue. And in the ocean, it's actually a very beautiful image when they get a couple shots of it. And he ends the movie like that too. But then we get this end shot in chapter one of him just alone with these fluorescent lights, not being able to glow like he can in moonlight in just this crappy little bathroom. Yeah, and then... That scene where Wong teaches him how to swim in the ocean, and, and but before that he has uh, Chiron float on his back on the water, and this is a an important moment for Chiron because um, when you float on the water, in a way you just you're letting go. You know what I mean? You're just letting your body um, give in to the ocean and the current, and so it's the first time in his life where he's he's just let himself go, and so that's why. Every time the film transfers transitions from each chapter, um, it's through water. So he's in the bathtub, and then when he's older, when he becomes black, his face is in the water of ice. So Barry Jenkins uses water as a device of how he transitions from each age gap. And then chapter two is called Chiron, and this is Chiron going through adolescence, and he's in high school now, and his life has gotten worse. His, his mother's more addicted to drugs, more addicted to crack. She's a full-on addict now. Um, she's reckless and erratic, and now Chiron is even more of a victim and target of bullies. You know, at first, there was just kids picking on him when they were little, but now he's actually getting roughed up. and It's getting violent. It's getting violent, and there are actual bullies that legitimately hate Chiron because of who he is and what he is. And he's ter- when he's at school, Chiron is terrified. And... It- I can't help but think every time I watch this movie that Chiron in Act 1 and 2, in Chapters 1 and 2, is kind of like this lost soul. He's this lost person who can't escape where he is. He can't escape his home. He can't escape his life. He can't escape these bullies. He's just stuck in this horrible limbo of a situation that he didn't doesn't deserve, obviously, and one that he was just born into, and he didn't choose. That's a great point. Some kids grow up in horrible environments, bad environments, and I think... The best way that Barry Jenkins demonstrates this is with a really fantastic cut between two scenes. And so the two scenes are, the first scene is Paula, Chiron's mother, literally robs Chiron from the money that Teresa gave him. She, she forces him to give her the money. So he literally gets robbed by his crack-addicted crack mother. And then he leaves for school and it cuts to him in, in science class. And he's obviously not paying attention because how can he pay attention to biology and white blood cells and red blood cells when his mother just robbed him so she can buy crack? So it's an amazing um, cut of two scenes to show how difficult this kid's life is and how can anyone expect him to even take school seriously. But then we have Kevin. Kevin's still in Chiron's life. They're in high school together. And Kevin 
kind of has this persona of this loud, kind of tough guy. Um, he tells Chiron about this story about blowing out some girl's back underneath the stairs during high school, which you don't know if it's true or not. It, I don't it, think it's true. I think it's made up because I think Kevin's also he's also um, coming to terms with his homosexuality or his bisexual um, orientation. And so he's probably trying to hide that for now, keep that a secret in his life, kind of like Chiron is. Um, but they do share an intimate moment, and this is uh, the first time that anyone actually touches Chiron where they're at the beach, and Chiron's just trying to get away from everything, and Kevin finds him there and smokes him up. Smokes him up, and it's it's funny because... Kevin calls Chiron black at this point, and Chiron's like, "Why you call me black? It's not my name." It's like, "Why, why you give another guy a, a nickname?" Because they're both, you know, they're they, they're both very curious, but also they're both on their guard, kind of like in "Call Me by Your Name" with Elio. You're on your guard. You're you're afraid to come to terms with those feelings, and you're afraid of rejection. And um, he's like, "I'm the guy who's gonna light you up on this blunt." <laughs> <laughs> but um, they both come to terms with it, and they and they kiss. And uh, Kevin gives him a hand job on the beach in the sand. And it's the first time that um, Chiron's ever felt anything like that. It's the first time anyone's he's ever experienced anything he's like that. He's never been touched in a loving way before. And so despite everything that's horribly wrong in his life, he now has this connection with Kevin. In your head, you're thinking, like, maybe there can be a future with Kevin and Chiron, or maybe there's some storyline that could happen with them, and maybe they could keep start a relationship or keep it secret or not or, or be public with it and it kind of gives you hope and it, it gives Chiron hope and um this scene is very in- important because if you notice what light is shining on them in the moonlight. The moonlight shining on them it's going to be a recurring theme obviously um we'll get to that at the end so but in the scene where th- he has his first sexual experience Chiron is bathed in moonlight the main difference between this chapter and the previous chapter is the absence of Juan. And we find out that Juan died. We don't know how he died, but we know he's dead. And my guess is some drug-related reason. I mean, for example, when Chiron was little and he knocked on the door, Juan approached the door with a handgun. So obviously, he li- he works in a very dangerous industry. So I, I, I would uh, guess that something like that happened. But the absence of Juan is felt by the audience so much because... You miss him just as an audience member. You miss Juan. You miss his presence. You miss his wisdom. You miss his kindness towards Chiron, and you miss his you miss his fatherly um, his his fatherly qualities. And you can only imagine how hard it is for Chiron to to have to go through each day without Juan anymore because Juan was his father figure, and uh, a father figure is very important to a young boy and a young man. Um, and so without that father figure, he feels like he's lost, especially because his mother is completely gone now. And also during that beach scene, he's bathed in moonlight, but also he and Kevin talk about that breeze. There's this cool breeze coming from the ocean that they're both just feeling. And Kevin talks about how he can feel it all the way in his hood and everything just stops and everyone just relaxes and feels this breeze coming through from the ocean. And that comes into play later on, too. And as we talked about, this is a possible future emotional connection for Chiron that he can build. And maybe he thinks he can build it into an actual connection. But the next day at school, the bullies make Kevin play that old game they used to play. 
and they point out Chiron to get knocked out by Kevin, and Kevin has to make the decision to either give in to the bullies and the popular kids and to hide his true identity and beat up Chiron or to not beat up Chiron and accept who he really is at the time. Instead, he, he decides to, to beat up Chiron, and all the bullies end up kicking him, and they just mess him up on the ground, and Chiron took a beating, and he's really got some significant injuries and it's a really emotional scene when he's got band-aid bandages on his face and he's still bleeding and he's talking to the principal and uh, the principal's trying to tell him like he has to confess and or he has to give up the other kids. They should be sitting there next to him too. Um, if he was a real man, he'd be telling him. But Chiron just tries to tell her that she has no idea. She doesn't know anything. She doesn't know anything about what's going on in his life and everything that he has to deal with. And there's this amazing shot that Barry Jenkins I think it might be one of the best shots he gets in the whole film where the principal's on one side of Chiron's shoulder trying to comfort him and talk to him and Barry Jenkins just pulls out all the sound and the audio gets very quiet and it's just you you feel like you're inside Chiron's head because he's going back to his quality of just blocking everything out he's blocking out the principal he's not even thinking about her anymore he's just thinking about his life and how fucked up it is and how to get out of his life and what he can do and he's just probably at this point just emotionally gone and disconnected from everything. Yeah, you're right. It's a great moment. And Chiron decides to to change, make a change in his life. And he, he decides to to not just stand up for himself, but to become something else. And he does this by attacking the bully the next day at school with a chair and beats him so badly that the boy seems to be like near near on the verge of death. And this causes Chiron to be arrested. Yeah, so he commits assault and gets arrested. And then we go right to chapter three called Black. And this is where we get the introduction of his new persona. And he's black. And ironically, black is just like Juan. He looks exactly like him. He's built like him. He's got a similar car. He's got the crown on the dash of his hood. He's a hardcore trapper. He's the toughest guy in the neighborhood. So he's become what at first as a, as a kid he learned to despise after he learned about what Juan really did for a living and how it affected his life and his mother. Now he's become that. So I think that he, he adopted all of Juan's characteristics because Juan was his only father figure and Juan showed him love and Juan was also um, a depiction of ultimate masculinity. And so that's why Chiron got jacked, and that's why he, he has the crown, and that's why he looks and acts like Juan, because he became the most powerful person he know he ever knew as a way to protect himself. So he became, since he doesn't have Juan in his life anymore, he became Juan to protect Chiron, the Chiron inside of him. Yeah, in the betrayal of Kevin... And then his arrest, and obviously you can assume when he was in jail and when he came out, this forced him to create this new persona and to repress, I mean, and to suppress his real urges, his real desires, and his true identity deep down inside. Because despite being this tough guy and this jack dude and the grills and the jewelry and the car, really deep down, which we'll see later on, Chiron is still that very shy, skinny little kid that he was. Yeah, he's just adopted this gangster facade. And ironically, he even uh, he adopted the nickname that Kevin gave him when they were teenagers, Black. So now he calls himself Black. And also, 
I think it's ironic because Kevin, when they were in high school, was putting on this gangster facade, but he did it when he was a teenager. He did the same exact thing, and now Chiron's doing it as an adult. So I think that Kevin did the same thing when they were younger, and now Chiron is doing basically the same thing of putting up this tough front to to hide who he really is. And it's ironic, too, because Chiron, like we said earlier, hated his mother, so didn't Juan. But then Juan still talked about his mother and how he missed her. Chiron has a framed photo of his mother holding him as a baby on his nightstand. And he even gets a phone call from her and says he's going to visit her the next day. And so despite all the pain and tragedy that she created in, in Chiron's life, he still loves her. And he still has that, that bond that will never break, that, that only a mother and only a child can experience with each other. That leads to that emotionally devastating scene when he visits his mother. And um, she seems to be at some kind of um, rehab clinic where she's just living indefinitely and uh, helping other people get clean. They have this this incredible talk where Paula tells him that she, she knows that she messed up and, and she regrets everything she did and that she doesn't deserve Chiron's love, but it's important for her to let him know that she loves him and he might not love her back, but he needs to know that he is loved by her now. She never loved him when he was a kid. She never expressed love. She was his mother, yeah, but she wasn't really there for him. But she wants him to know that she's there now, and she wants to be a mother to him again. And it's tough for him to accept at first. And also, before he goes to see his mother, he gets a phone call from Kevin, and this knocks him on his ass, and he doesn't know how to speak or react because he hasn't heard from Kevin in a long time. And uh, Kevin asks him how he's doing, and says he was thinking of him because some guy came in and played a song and it reminded him of Black. And Kevin invites him anytime he's back in town in Miami, his hometown, to come check him out at his restaurant to get some food because Black now lives in Atlanta, Georgia. And so he actually takes him up on this offer and Black just decides to, on a whim, go after he sees his mother. He drives on down to Miami to go find Kevin. He makes the drive because he still feels this strong, intimate connection to Kevin. Yeah, so the last like 15 minutes of this film is this really beautiful scene of Black, aka Chiron, coming to find Kevin at his diner. And it's a really amazing scene, and it's, it's, people might think it's long, but I think it's perfect length, and you really get this connection between these two, and they learn about each other. And again, just like the phone call, as soon as he sits down at the diner and Kevin realizes it's him, he can't say a goddamn word, and Kevin even makes fun of him. He's like, same Chiron. You can't get more than two words out of your mouth at a time. <laughs> even though earlier he was just talking to his employee and his dealers like he was nobody and yeah. like he was a tough guy. So he officially loses that tough guy persona and is back to he's back to Chiron. He's back to putting his head down. The first two acts of this movie, he's constantly got his head down, looking at the ground, speaking at the ground. Now, obviously, um, when, Black Wake, when Chapter Black starts, um, Black's face is always up. That's the first thing you notice. His chin's up. He's keeping his head high, yeah. but not anymore now that he's in front of Kevin. Yeah, and ironically, Kevin makes him a Cuban dish, and Juan is from Cuba, his father figure. So I think that's a, a cute little connection between them. But ultimately, they have they do have a nice reacquaintance, and, and they're happy to see each other. But Kevin ultimately reveals that he's he's kind of disappointed with 
with who Chiron became. When he it, confesses to him that he's trapping. Yeah, when he says he's trapping and he's like, why are you wearing these grills? And and he's like, he, and then he, he tells Chiron, he's like, I know you and this isn't you. And Chiron angrily says, you don't know anything about me. And then Kevin says, I, I don't know you. And what he's saying is like, I actually know you better than anyone else in the world. I know who you really are. I, I've seen your true side. So yes, I do know who you are. And I know that you aren't a real, you really aren't a trapper. Yeah, so that and so that's why Kevin is ultimately disappointed and underwhelmed by what Chiron became. Because he really deep down, he like you just said, he knows Chiron. He knows that Chiron, he's not really black. His name is Chiron, and he's really that skinny little scrawny kid that grew up in horrible conditions. He had the crack addicted mother, and he's just been reaching out desperately his entire life for some kind of love, some kind of affection. So they almost get in this kind of fight, or at least Kevin. Uh, tells his true feelings about like how you said he's disappointed with Chiron and there's a shot where Kevin gets up to go clean up some dishes and then Chiron looks at the door and Barry Jenkins does this like four second push in on this door which is like he could leave maybe he's thinking about I'm just gonna get in my car and go back home to Atlanta and never see Kevin again and it sounds very noisy and chaotic outside so you might think for a second that Chiron's just gonna leave but um he decides to stay and he asks Kevin why he called him. Why why'd you call me up? And he explains about the guy who walked in and put on a song. And so Kevin gets up and puts that same song on. It's the song Hello Stranger by Barbara Lewis. It's a powerful scene because there's no dialogue being spoken. They're both just listening to this romantic song. And they're just making eye contact with each other. They're just looking at each other. There's no dialogue, no lines, no expressions besides nonverbal communication. Yeah, and the song, the lyrics, I mean, I can't remember them specifically, but um, the theme is uh, the courtship between two people. So Black uh, drives Kevin back to his home, and obviously Kevin you know, lets him stay and come over for the night because Chiron didn't plan this out. He didn't plan on where to stay. And... They go back to talking about how Kevin's a little disappointed in what Chiron's become. And then Chiron reveals why he changed. And he tells Kevin that when he went to prison and he was released, he, he rebuilt himself from the ground up and became black and changed his entire persona as a way to protect himself. And so he, he pretty much kind of like invented black. Yeah, so black again is this... We talked about multiple times, and especially at the beginning of this uh, part of the episode, that it's this child who creates this new persona as basically like a shield to protect himself, which is what Black is to Chiron. And Chiron's, the last thing he says to Kevin, the last two lines of the film, actually, he tells Kevin that he's the only man that's ever touched him, and pretty much the only person that's ever touched him in his entire life. And this, this really kind of embodies... The character of Chiron, who has been longing his entire life for affection, physical connection, sexual connection, longing, um, dealing with his uh, suppression of his homosexuality, his mother's um, pain, the pain his mother caused him, the death of Juan, everything he's gone through in his life. And Kevin's the only person that he's ever had any kind of real connection with. We learned that Chiron ultimately he just he wants to be touched by someone who loves him. He wants intimacy. He's never had it. And 
it leads to the great finale where Barry Jenkins cuts to uh, what what appears to be the bedroom, and Kevin is just holding Chiron um, with affection and love and comfort, and Chiron is just resting his head on his shoulder, and he it's it's the one thing he's always wanted but never had, and then it cuts to Chiron as a child bathed in moonlight at the beach. What do you think the moonlight represents? Identity. I think that the moonlight represents uh, freedom and truth. So that's why we see Little on the beach bathed in moonlight because by allowing himself to open up to Kevin and then being held intimately by Kevin, he's finally freeing Chiron from this facade that he built and he's finally being true to himself and he's not going to repress who he is anymore. And so now that he's finally set himself loose and he's out in the open, uh, we cut to the moonlight because he's finally free. This film is full of the theme of betrayal. A lot of characters betray things that are important to them. I mean, obviously, Chiron's mother, Paula, betrays him, treats him basically not like a son at all. Treats him with disgust at times, contempt. There's that emotional scene where she's in the hallway high and just staring at him with rage and screaming at him. Then she slams the door into her room. Um, Juan himself, he, in a sense, betrays Little because he's the one that's providing the drugs for Chiron's mother. So he betrays him. And Chiron even betrays his own true identity when he becomes black. Kevin betrays... Chiron in high school when he attacks him in order to keep up his tough guy persona and his his fake identity and again the end of the film is coming to terms with who you are and accepting who you are yeah it's a really beautiful profound movie it deserved the Oscar for best picture for sure and unfortunately this movie <laughs> was the one that had the mix up at the Oscars where Warren Betty read the wrong title read la la land who who for best picture and this was a horrible mistake and it's insane that this happened and how he was handed the wrong card for the announcement of the winner of best picture at the academy awards is mind-blowing yeah what happened was he was accidentally handed the card that said emma stone best actress for la la land um, because there are duplicates made of every card, so there was left over, and it was given to him by accident. So when he opened the envelope, he got very confused. You can see the confusion on his face. And then it said La La Land on the card, so he just said La La Land, thinking that was right. And it ended up being one of the most bizarre moments in Oscar history. Yeah, and obviously it doesn't take away from the fact that Moonlight was deservedly the best picture that year and the best movie of the year, obviously. Um, but this is how does this happen? First of all, hopefully the person who did this is fired and banished from California in general <laughs> in the industry. And also, you should not have 85-year-old, 90-year-old people reading cards for, for Best Picture winners. Let's, let's just nip that in the bud. Yeah, because I think if someone who was more astute would have been like, oh, this says Best Actress card. I need the Best Picture card. Rather than a 9-year-old man who's kind of so like, uh, on his rocker a little bit. Uh, he's got the whole 80 million people are watching him. He's obviously like, uh. But it's a, it's a wild moment. A really cool fact about this movie is that Brad Pitt actually provided provided the the money for the budget and the distribution for the film. So um, he actually won an Oscar for the best picture because he put up the money for it. Plan B. There Plan you go. B. 
one of the most amazing facts about this film is that Naomi Harris shot all of her scenes in just three days time. So she had three days in between um, the ending and wrapping, I think of the James Bond movie she was in. And then she had to do some publicity too. So she had three days to do this entire role also for visa. Oh, oh yeah, so she had issues with her visa too. Yeah. The scenes that she's in span 15 years of the character's life and her makeup is incredible in terms of what they did so quickly and it's just a testament to Naomi Harris's immense skill as an actor and her how her voice changed especially when she's older. She sounded old. Yeah, and it's it's hard to find actors that talented to do what she did on such a short notice and she she won best actress, right? Best supporting actress, I think. Nominated. Nominated. Okay. This is the first LGBTQ film and the first film featuring an all-black cast to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. And I think it's the lowest-budgeted film to win Best Picture since Rocky. Yeah, at $1.5 million. That wraps episode 34 of Raiders of the Lost podcast, Coming of Age featuring Lady Bird, Call Me By Your Name, and Moonlight, three terrific films. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Raiders of the Lost podcast, if you haven't already. Drop a like and comment on this video. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit the notifications on everything so you know when we're dropping new episodes every Monday and Thursday, plus all the clips we post throughout the week on YouTube. Don't forget to enter the movie poster giveaway contest. The winner will be announced on Friday, so get on it ASAP on YouTube. Don't forget to check out our Patreon, where you can support us monthly and get awesome perks, which we talked about at the beginning of the video. Get 15% off your order at MoviePosters.com with Raiders15 coupon code at checkout. And get 20% off your order and free shipping at Manscaped.com with coupon code RaidersOfTheLost at checkout. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We really appreciate all the support. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for next episode coming out on Thursday. Have a great day. Take care.